In the secular world that we live in, humility is not something that is esteemed. Pastor William Farley in his book Gospel-Powered Humility says this, In the secular world, humility is seen as weakness, a lack of confidence, and a virtue that stifles advancement and productivity. And of course, we do see this in the world. Think about the past few elections. Do politicians run their campaigns on humility and humble service? Think about athletes who want to make it to the top. Do they see advancement to the the big leagues where they want to be? Do they see advancement by being humble? Or how about someone in the business world seeking a higher position? Is the world telling them that they will advance through humility? Of course not. Why? Because the world sees humility as weakness and as a virtue that stifles advancement and productivity. But that's not how it works in God's kingdom. You see, God's ways are different. In fact, as you read through the Scriptures, you'll notice that it wasn't a bunch of high and exalted proud people that God used to advance His plan. But it was humble people that God used. And especially in His plan of salvation, God didn't use kings or rulers or proud, prestigious people, but God used the lowly. And the humble. Because that's how God works. And as we think about Christmas and God's plan of salvation, we can think about this. God did not make an announcement to the world that the King has arrived. In fact, He announced it to some lowly shepherds out in the field. He didn't have an ivory palace or a gold-plated throne waiting for his son to sit on. Instead, he had a manger, a feeding trough for his son to lay his head. He didn't send his son into the world through a ruling king or a royal family with lots of money and prestige. No, he used a poor teenage couple to bring forth His Son into this world. You see, God sent the Messiah to earth both through humble people and through humble means. In fact, we sing about this every year when we sing the hymn, What Child Is This? In the second stanza, we sing this, Why lies He in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? That phrase, mean estate, means of little value, humble, or poor. Christ came in a humble way, through humble means, and humble people in order to save sinners like us. And over the past few months, we've been studying Philippians chapter 2, where we have seen that Paul has called us, and God has called us, to be humble, to lower ourselves, 
to be humble and to regard one another as more important than ourselves. And so what I want to do this Sunday and and next Sunday is look at the humility of Christmas. The humility of Christmas. And we're going to see how God accomplishes the greatest act of all in coming to save us from our sins, but how He accomplishes it through humble people and humble means. This morning we're going to see humble people that God used in order to prepare the way for our humble Savior to come. And then next Sunday, we're going to see humble people that God used to bring forth the Savior into the world. And so if you haven't already, I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. What I want to do is spend some time in Luke chapter 1 this morning. We're going to see God's preparation for the birth of Christ and how God used some humble people to accomplish His perfect plan of sending Christ into this world so that we might be saved from our sins. In fact, this morning we're going to be looking at the events leading up to Christmas. We're going to begin about six months before the very first Christmas. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, and we'll begin by looking at our first point, point number one, what we'll call the humility of a barren couple. The humility of a barren couple. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Notice what Luke says there. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced. In years. Now notice that Luke tells us here that this all took place. Notice what he says there in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. The days of Herod, king of Judea. That Herod there that Luke is referring to is Herod the Great. It's Herod the Great. Let me just give you a little history about Herod the Great. When Herod was 25 years old, he became the governor of Galilee after being appointed by his father, who was the governor of Judea. His father eventually died, and Herod the Great would then be declared by Rome to be the king of Judea. This happened around 37 B.C. Herod was not a Jew. But Herod wanted to be in good standing with the Jewish people, and so he married a prestigious Jewish woman, along with many other women that he married. Herod helped to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and he even lowered taxes for the people during a severe famine that happened around 25 B.C. And so Herod became very popular with the Jewish people. They even formed a pro-Herod group called the Herodians. The Herodians, a group of Jewish people who were in favor or supporters of Herod. You can see how this still happens as people join groups, put signs out in front of their yards, wear hats and t-shirts, 
do all kinds of things to show their love and support for a man, right? We still do that today. They had that back then, maybe not the hats and the t-shirts, but they had groups. One of these groups was the Herodians, who were supporters of Herod the Great. Herod was very popular, and he was very powerful. But Herod wasn't the best of kings. In fact, Herod was a very wicked king. One commentator says he was one of the cruelest rulers of all history. He was constantly worried that someone would come in and usurp his power as king. And so he had members of his own family murdered because they had posed a threat to his rule, to his power, and to his authority. Both wives and sons he had executed. This Herod is also the Herod who feared when he heard from the Magi that the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. And so he had all of the babies, two years and under, in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem, murdered. He had them killed because he feared that there was another king who had been born who was going to take his power and his authority. And so what we're about to see here in Luke chapter 1 is all happening during the reign of this prideful and wicked king, Herod the Great. But notice what Luke does here in verse 5. He transitions from King Herod the Great to a, a lowly priest by the name of Zechariah. As one commentator says, Luke's cast of characters abruptly transitions from the proud King Herod to the humble priest named Zechariah. He goes from a man whom everyone knows to a man whom nobody knows. Now, who was Zacharias? Who was this man? Well, Zacharias was one of thousands of priests who served in Israel during this time. Zacharias' name means Yahweh has remembered. Yahweh has remembered. He was a priest, and as a priest, his job was to carry out his priestly duties in a remote village in the hill country of Judea outside of Jerusalem where he and his wife Elizabeth lived. We don't know the name of this village where they lived. All we know is that it was in the hill country of Judah as we see in verse 39. Some commentators think that it was a town about five miles outside of Jerusalem. But really, we don't know. We don't even know where this priest, Zechariah, lived. He wasn't that important. He was a lowly priest. But notice how Luke describes Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth in verse 6. Notice what he says there. He says, They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now as we look at this, I want you to see how this couple lived as low and humble people. Notice first that Luke tells us that they were righteous in the sight of God. This couple was righteous in the sight of God. They weren't righteous in the sight of men, but they were righteous in the sight of God. 
Now at this time, Zechariah and Elizabeth were living among a people who were self-righteous hypocrites. Judaism at this time in Israel's history was a self-righteous religious system. The Jews were very, very religious. And they had set up a system in which they thought that they could earn their way to God by doing good, by upholding the law. In fact, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees burdened the people with laws and regulations, and they had set up a system of works righteousness in trying to get to heaven through keeping the law. At this point in Israel's history, Israel was an apostate nation. That is, they had turned their backs on God. An apostate nation. In fact, for 400 years up to this point, for 400 years, God had been silent with Israel. There was no prophet. There was no new revelation that was given to Israel. For 400 years up to this point, they were an apostate nation. Although they claimed to serve and to worship God, they had turned their backs against Him. And they had set up their own self-righteous religious system. But notice that God sees Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, as righteous in His sight. God sees them as a righteous couple, and then God acts. But this couple wasn't righteous because of their own human achievements or their own good works. They were righteous because of what? Their faith in God. They were righteous because of their faith. Because that is always how God declares someone as righteous. It's not by our good works. It's not by anything that any one of us has ever done But it's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Which means this couple knew of their sin. They knew of their sin and their utter unworthiness before God. And they had turned from their sin and they had placed their faith in God and in His promise that He was going to send the Messiah. You see, the Messiah hasn't come yet and so they're looking forward. They're looking ahead to the Messiah when the Messiah would come. We now, in the New Covenant, we look back at the Messiah who has come. But their faith was in God and the promise that God was going to send the Messiah. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth. That was their, their faith. In fact, notice that Luke tells us that they were also walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that they were sinless, that somehow this couple was perfect. It doesn't mean that. And it doesn't mean that they were declared righteous because they were walking blamelessly. But this couple, they walked blamelessly as those who had been declared righteous by God because of their faith in Him. They loved God and they sought to obey His commandments. And so they were blameless as they walked in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. This is a couple who humbled themselves. They had placed their faith in God and He declared them righteous through faith in Him alone. 
not because of any of their good works. Their good works were just an outflow of the redeemed heart as they humbly served and obeyed God. Now, how do we conclude that Luke's description of this righteous couple means that they were humble? Well, what does James 4, 6 tell us? In James chapter 4 and verse 6, James tells us this, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to who? To the humble. To the humble. God showed grace to this couple and He declared them righteous in His sight, not because they were proud, self-righteous, religious people like those who were living around them. In fact, if that would have been their life, if they were proud, self-righteous, religious people, God would have been opposed to them. Just as He was with all the other self-righteous, religious Jews of that time. God was opposed with them. But God wasn't opposed to Zacharias and Elizabeth. But He showed them grace. And He graciously saved them as they were humble. And they humbled themselves before Him. And as they did that, God showed them grace and He saved them and He declared them to be righteous in His sight. Reminds me of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee in Luke 18. The tax collector who was self-righteous. Uh, the Pharisee who was self-righteous. And who thought that he could earn his way to God. That he could earn his way to heaven. But the tax collector in Luke 18 humbled himself. And all he said was, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He was a humble man. And God justified him. God declared him righteous as he humbled himself before God. And that's exactly what we see with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were a humble couple. And they had a right standing with God. Because they had humbled themselves and put their faith in him. Second, we see the humility of Zechariah through his prayer life. We see the humility of Zechariah through his prayer life. Notice down in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1. Notice what it says there. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Now, Notice right in the middle of that verse that Gabriel tells Zechariah, your petition has been heard. Your petition has been heard. Now what's interesting here is that as a priest, Zechariah was required to go to Jerusalem and serve at the temple two times a year for one week at a time. He was required to do that as a priest in Israel. Luke tells us up in verse 8, notice what he says there in verse 8, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Notice Luke tells us there that he was burning incense in the temple. 
That's what he was doing as a priest. This burning of incense here was something that would only happen once in a lifetime for a priest. Once in a lifetime. It was an honor for any priest to be selected or chosen to go into the temple and to burn incense. Notice that Luke tells us here that Zechariah was chosen by lot. By lot. We don't know for sure, but it's said that there could have been around 20,000 priests at this time in Israel. And so for Zacharias, this is a 1 in 20,000 chance to go in and burn incense. But as we know, Zacharias wasn't chosen by chance, right? He wasn't chosen by chance. This right here is divine providence. This is divine selection of this man, Zacharias. This is God's plan of redemption being worked out just as God had planned it, using humble people to accomplish His perfect plan. And so as Zechariah is there in the temple burning incense, it was his task to go into the altar of incense in the holy place, not into the holy of holies, but into the holy place while the people are standing outside of the temple and they are there praying. And it was his duty then, his task was to go in there to the altar of incense and burn the incense which represented the prayers of the people. He was a representative for the people to go and burn the incense representing the prayers of the people. And as a priest, he was going into the temple to go to God on behalf of the people and offer the prayers of repentance, confession, and thanksgiving. That's what his task was to do. That's what his job was to do. To go offer prayers of repentance, confession, and thanksgiving on behalf of the people. But what is interesting here is that the most common prayer that the priest would offer when he would go there to that altar, to the altar of incense, the most common prayer that the priest would pray is a prayer that God would visit His people with salvation through the Messiah. That would be his prayer. As he came up to the altar there, he would pray, Oh God, visit your people with salvation. Send the Messiah. Remember at this point, Israel has been waiting for the Messiah to come. He hasn't come yet. They're waiting for him to come. And so it was the priest who would go into this altar and he would offer up this prayer that God would send the Messiah. Well, God is answering that prayer as he's preparing to send the Messiah, right? But notice that Gabriel says down in verse 13, your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. He doesn't say your petition has been answered and the Messiah is coming soon. Although it's true, the Messiah is coming soon. But he says your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. So what was it that Zacharias has been praying all of these years? He's been praying for a son. He's praying for a son. 
Zechariah has been praying all of these years for a son because his wife, Elizabeth, was barren. And it's the prayer life of Zechariah that shows his humility and total dependence upon God. He wasn't going to give up. But he was going to humbly approach the throne of God and pray that God would give him and his wife a son. Ian Bounds comments on prayer and humility and he says this, that which brings the praying soul near to God is humility of heart. That which gives wings to prayer is lowliness of mind. That which gives ready access to the throne of grace is self-deprecation. Pride, self-esteem, and self-praise effectually shut the door of prayer. Zacharias was a humble man who didn't stop praying to the Lord. What's he been praying all of these years? He's been humbly praying for a son. He never gave up, but he humbly prayed that God would send him a son. And God heard that humble prayer, and God answered that humble prayer. And so we can see the humility of Zechariah and Elizabeth through their right standing with God. We see the humility of Zechariah through his dependence upon God in prayer. We also see the humility of Elizabeth in her pregnancy. We see the humility of Elizabeth in her pregnancy. Look at verse 7 and notice what it says there. But they, Zechariah and Elizabeth, had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, since Elizabeth was barren, both Zechariah and Elizabeth had been living with shame and disgrace. In fact, that's even what she says down in verse 25. Notice what she says there. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me and the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. They had been living with shame and disgrace. You see, many people in that culture would have wondered what kind of sin Zechariah and Elizabeth had been living with in their lives because in those days, if you were barren, it was seen as some kind of judgment or punishment from God. That's how the people around them viewed Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were sinners who had done something for Elizabeth to deserve barrenness. And so they saw it as God's judgment or God's punishment upon anyone who was barren. Children were seen as a gift from the Lord. And so to not be able to have children meant that God was punishing you in some way. This would have been very difficult. A very difficult burden for Elizabeth and for Zacharias to bear. As they walked around town, people would have looked at them would have known they have no children. They're under God's judgment. God is somehow punishing them for something that they've, they've done. And so, they lived with this burden, with this hardship all of their lives. And they didn't live just with this, this hardship of Elizabeth being barren, but notice at the end of verse 7, it says they were both advanced in years. They were both advanced in years. In fact, that's how 
Zechariah even answers Gabriel in verse 18. He says, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. We don't know how old they were, but implied here is that they were at an age where bearing children was virtually impossible. But all things are possible with God, right? But it seemed hopeless for them. It was virtually impossible for them to have a son But as we saw, Gabriel tells Zechariah in verse 13 that Elizabeth is going to bear a son and that they're going to give him the name of John. Look at verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. This prayer has been answered and they're going to have a son. Look down at verse 24. Notice what it says there in verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Now, back up in verses 19 and 20, we see that while Zacharias was in the temple, Zacharias did not believe Gabriel when Gabriel announced this to him. Look at verse 19 and what it says. The, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Zacharias doesn't believe it. So he's mute. He becomes mute. But he goes back home to Elizabeth after serving his days there at the temple, finishing up that week-long service that he was to do in Jerusalem at the temple. He goes home to Elizabeth. And he signs to her, because that would be the way he would be able to communicate with her, signs to her, writes it down in some way, and communicates to her that Elizabeth is going to have a son. What happens? Verse 24, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. The barren woman will now have a child. Now hold your finger in Luke chapter 1 and turn over to Psalm 113. Psalm 113, we read the beginning of this in our call to worship this morning. But I want you to notice in Psalm 113, as it begins with the the high, exalted praise of God, that God is above all. In fact, in verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. But then notice what the psalmist says in verse 5. In verse 5, he says this, Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. 
What is the psalmist saying here? God is high and exalted. He is lifted up above all the nations. And yet God sees the lowly. God sees those who are low. God sees those who are humble. And who would have been one of the lowly ones in those days? The barren woman. She's a lowly one. But notice what God says there in verse 9. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. What did God do with Elizabeth? This poor, barren woman? He gave her joy. He gave her joy. He gave her a son. And what did she do? What did she do when she found out that she's going to have a son? She praised the Lord, which is exactly what Psalm 113 says at the end. Praise the Lord. Praise God that He visits the lowly and the humble. That the God who is highly exalted above all the nations is a God who looks upon the humble and the lowly. Now go back to Luke chapter 1. Because I want, I want you to see how Elizabeth responded when she encountered Mary over in verse 41. You see, at this point, Mary has been visited by Gabriel. And she is now pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Gabriel tells Mary in verse 36 that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant as well in her sixth month. Notice what it says in verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Now, we don't know the exact relationship between Elizabeth and Mary. Some say that they are cousins, but that Greek word for relative there simply means belonging to the same extended family or clan. Not specifically a cousin. They could have been cousins. We just don't know for sure. But we do know that they were somehow related to each other. Being related, Mary obviously knows Elizabeth. And Mary quickly then goes over to Elizabeth's house to go and see her in the hill country of Judea. And when Mary enters the house, notice Elizabeth's response down in verse 41. Look at verse 41 and notice what it says there. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now think about this. Elizabeth has been barren her whole life. She's now pregnant with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. She knows the importance of her son because back in verse 15, Gabriel reveals to Zechariah that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. This son in your womb is going to be great. And not just great, but great in the sight of the Lord. 
And yet Elizabeth says in verse 43, And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? You see, Elizabeth knows the greatness of the baby in Mary's womb. And in humility, she understands her unworthiness to be in the presence of such an honored person like Mary. She could have responded with bitterness and jealousy over the fact that this teenage girl, Mary, a teenage girl has been chosen to be the mother of her Lord. She doesn't do that. Why? Because she was humble. And she understood her own unworthiness to be in the presence of such an honored woman like Mary. She's a humble woman. And her humility did not only lead her to recognize the great blessing that God had given to Mary. But notice what she calls the baby in Mary's womb. She calls him, my Lord. My Lord. You see, she knew that Jesus, the Messiah, the baby in the womb of Mary, is her Lord and Master. That little child in your womb, Mary, is my Lord, is my Master. And I'm submitted to him. What a humble statement. What a humble woman Elizabeth was. And it was a humble priest and a humble barren woman that God was using in his plan of salvation to bring the forerunner the Messiah, into the world to prepare the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah who would come to die on a cross for their sins so that they might be saved. What's amazing is that this humble, barren couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth, would also have a humble son. they would bear a humble son, John the Baptist. Now, as I said back in verse 15, we read that Gabriel said about John, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus even said of John the Baptist in Luke 7, 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. John the Baptist. No one greater. But turn over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 and verse 15. Notice what it says there. Now while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them, said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
notice what John says here. I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. John, whom Gabriel said will be great in the sight of the Lord, and whom Jesus said no one is greater born of a woman. John the Baptist, he is the one who says, I am not fit to untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. You see, to untie the thong of the sandal was the task of a slave in those days. It was the lowest task of all. In fact, rabbis taught that a disciple should do everything for their master except untie their sandals because it was too humiliating of a task for them to do. You as a disciple, serve your master in every way except don't ever untie their sandal. It's too humiliating of a task for you to do as a disciple. It was reserved for the lowest of the low. And yet John the Baptist, whom is the greatest man born of a woman, said that he is not fit. He is not worthy to untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. He's not even worthy to be the lowest slave of Jesus. And why would this great man say that? Because he was humble. Because he was a humble man. And he would be the man whom God used as the forerunner for the Messiah. And this was the man whom Zechariah and Elizabeth raised. It was their son. This humble couple produced a humble child who would serve the Lord and would prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. You see, God used the humble position of this lowly priest and his barren wife to bring in the forerunner for Christ who was to be born only six months later. In the midst of a proud nation of self-righteous Jews, there was a humble couple. A humble couple, faithfully serving the Lord and fully dependent upon Him. Were they perfect? No. They weren't perfect. Did they doubt God? Yes. They did. They doubted God. But they were humble servants who were ready to be used by God in whatever manner God wanted to use them. And God's plan was to use them at this time to birth the forerunner for the Messiah so that the people's hearts would be prepared to receive the Messiah who would come to save them from their sins. You see, the very first Christmas season began with a humble couple who lived out in the hill country of Judea, but who were ready and willing to be used by God. One commentator says, God is the God of humble beginnings and humble people. And he used Zacharias and Elizabeth because of their faithfulness in spite 
of their shortcomings. Do we have to become perfect in order to be used by God? No. What is God looking for? Humility of heart. Willingness. Faithfulness to Him. Ready to be used by Him. And listen, church, God will use you if you will humble yourself and be ready and willing to be used by Him. Because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to who? To the humble. And while the world is telling us that humility is weakness, that stifles advancement and productivity, in God's kingdom, He uses humility and humble people to advance His perfect plan. Just as He used Zechariah and Elizabeth, a humble couple. God doesn't use the proud and the self-righteous, but He uses the humble and the lowly. And that's what he did that very first Christmas season. But it wasn't just a humble barren couple that God used. He also used a humble betrothed couple as well. God would use them to bring forth his humble son into this world to come and save us from our sins. And we'll look at them next time. Let's pray. Father, We are humbled by the story of this couple. The lowliness of their heart. As they humbled themselves before you. The high and exalted and lifted one. Who is high above the nations. You are the God who is enthroned above all gods, above this world. Father, we thank you that you look at, that you regard the humble and the lowly. Father, help us to be humble and lowly servants of you to learn from this faithful couple who although they were at a point in their life where it seemed impossible for them to have a son, Lord, we know that all things are possible with you. Father, as we celebrate this Christmas season, help us to remain humble and to be used by you in whatever means, in whatever ways that you want to use us. May we be faithful to you and to your word. And may it all be for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.